Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome, everybody, back for another edition of The Shot Podcast. Today in Sydney, we are delighted to have Ms. Grace Tame in person, sitting just across from us, which is an absolute thrill. I'm real. <laughs> she is real and she is three-dimensional. Uh, Charles Firth, also here. Hello. But um, most impressive of all is that we have another special guest. Joining us from Adelaide is author and journalist Walter Marsh, who's the man of the moment when it comes to telling untold tales of our favourite billionaire bastard, Rupert Murdoch. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Just launched your new book yesterday, The Young Murdoch. Yeah, it's all, it's all, it's out there now. It's um, all official. I just wait to see um, if any, if any scary letters come through. It should be fine. I hope so. I don't think you've launched a book about Murdoch if you don't get some scary letters, surely. <laughs> not from Murdoch Senior though. He's not the litigious one, so perhaps you're safe. <laughs> Now, look, it's what I want to say first about this book is it is just a cracking read. Mm. It is beautifully written, very entertaining, witty, and does dive into, if you think you know everything about Murdoch, this actually does tell some of that backstory that you probably don't know in the detail that you outline in this book, Walter. Mm. Well, I guess this was a story, um, it's sort of more or less focuses on 10 years from 1950 to 1960 uh, when Rupert is, you know, sort of handover moment from his father, Sir Keith, to young Rupert, who's sort of unproven, brash, quite left-wing, 22-year-old, to kind of assuming his, you know, place on the path to, if not greatness, whatever he is now. Um, and uh, you, as you guys know, there's a lot of Murdoch books, books written about the guy. I've got a a shelf at home that's literally kind of buckling under the weight of them all. Your Murdoch but this shelf. Was a, yeah, but this was, my partner wants me to get rid of them. Um, <laughs> but this is a story that I thought kind of often fell through the cracks or became like a little novel footnote. But the more I sort of dug into like the archives, it seemed to me actually like this was the story. Um, and even though the stakes seem very different because it's, you know, in Adelaide in the 1950s, in a small town, everything's very heightened. And it actually kind of became like a scale model for everything that followed. Um, so I just kept pulling the string. Now, before we dive into it, this is going to be an indulgence for Walter and me and all of our South Australian listeners, um, because the thing about this book, which is so great for particularly South Australian readers, but anybody who has an interest in Adelaide, I think, is that it becomes a history of Adelaide as well. Um, and in fact, South Australia generally. I mean, I, for one, was not aware of that very tight link between the settlement model of South Australia and the emancipation of slavery in the United Kingdom. Yeah, everything's connected. And, and if you look at the timeline, uh, 1836, which is, you know, a very important date for, for South Australians, there's a basketball team named after it. Um, it. In terms of the arc of the British Empire, that was happening at a very interesting time in terms of, yeah, the end of slavery, a lot of people who own slaves being paid out a lot of money. So there's a lot of capital circulating around the empire. Um, and just in the last few years, really, people have been starting digging into that and seeing where some of it ended up. And unsurprisingly, a lot of um, that ended up in the 
the free colony of South Australia. We didn't have convicts, but we had a lot of other stuff going on. We sure did. And we were having like land being packaged up, unceded land, as you point out in the book, being packaged up and sold um, for people who had received all of this compensation for the fact that they had graciously emancipated um, their human chattels. Yes. And the other thing which I thought was really great, the way that you sort of um, embed the book really is for those of us who grew up in Adelaide in the recent decades is that Adelaide has always been a one paper town and it's always been, you know, the Murdoch dominated town. But actually the newspaper culture um, at the origins of South Australia and really until relatively recently was kind of peppered with all of these sort of, you know, feisty little papers um, in South Australian regional towns and in Adelaide that were kind of duking it out in some ways for um, coverage and for audience and readership within Adelaide before it kind of devolved into this sort of major battle between kind of locuses of power in Victoria and in South Australia. But then there's also this kind of um, cyclical uh, occurrence where every couple of maybe half a century or so, this sort of press monopoly or incredible concentration reasserts itself, yeah. um, which is interesting to see. So in the 19, at the end of the 1920s and the early 1930s, that's when Keith Murdoch, Rupert's father, when he's working as chairman and editor of the Herald and Weekly Times in Melbourne, he sets his sight on Adelaide. And that was a story I had a lot of fun with in the book where he really strategically um, uh, sort of chips away at Benithan, who's the old um, press lord of the advertiser, the biggest paper in town. He, Keith buys the register, which was South Australia's first paper, in order to spook Benighton into selling. He succeeds. They merge the papers. And then News Limited, which was owned by an, an ex-Herald editor, uh, he, that guy dies in like a London hotel room surrounded by beer bottles. Um, As you do. Uh, mm. Yeah. Um, what a way to go. Uh, and Keith very quickly snaps um, that company up as well. And so, yeah, Keith is responsible for this, you know, not literally a one-paper town, but a town where all the biggest papers are controlled by the one big interstate-based um, Herald and Weekly Times empire. And so then Rupert, um, 20 years later, wades into this city which has this very entrenched um, uh, culture of media and government which has been sort of ossifying over decades and it was fed up by his father um, 20, 30 years earlier. Yeah, I mean, it it does, it demonstrated again just how closely related all of these men companies, um, the power centres between media, between politics, particularly in South Australia as a small town and how they like to think it was, you know, all very genteel in the way that they engaged. But behind the scenes, there was sometimes kind of the knife fights going on um, over particular sections of the media at any given moment in Mm. time. And just carving up and, yeah, Yeah, ruling South Australia from from the Adelaide Club, which is just down the road um, from me today. And and still, you still see... um, uh, older, very well-dressed um, men, white-haired men stumbling out of there um, at early hours of the morning. Oh, yes. <laughs> who knows, who knows what, the, what deals they've been cooking up. Yeah, like nothing good. And yeah. so so at that point, Rupert goes to Adelaide. He He's incredibly young. He's about 22 or something. Yeah. And uh, and he's he's missed his dad's funeral. Yeah. He's, he's, but also, like, everyone around his father has tried to sort of steal away his inheritance while he was over in London missing his dad's funeral. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a really important, um, it's sort of the 
the engine of the story that I tell. And I think the story of, of Rupert's arc um, over the next seven years, it explains this kind of um, siege mentality and kind of fight back approach that he's had, you know, all the way through. So in his last years of life, Sir Keith, even though he presided over this big um, Herald and Weekly Times empire, it was called um, the Murdoch Press um, because he was its figurehead. And it was often often criticised in a lot of the same language uh, that we now see levelled at his son's papers, even though it was a totally different company. Um, uh, but in, he didn't actually own it. He didn't own a major stake. He just ran it. Um, so in his last few years of life, Keith was just very furiously, you know, plotting and wrangling what things he did own, what influence he had, borrowing a lot of money and just totally exploiting his position as chair of the Herald to stitch together this little um inheritance a little sort of side chain of papers to pass on to Rupert and that included the Brisbane Courier Mail uh, and News Limited uh, in Adelaide the publisher of the news which had previously been owned by the Herald uh, and in the late um, 1940s he actually convinced the board because there was this growing awareness and concern about press monopolies um, there was a UK Royal Commission uh, he kind of convinced the board that in order to um, sort of shift the focus away from how much control the Herald exerted in Adelaide, that maybe they should sell off their shares um, in News Limited. And then quietly, he's like, well, you can just sell them to my family trust. Uh, so he did that. And to some of his colleagues and his rivals, and he had a lot of rivals um, at the Herald, uh, his his closest allies thought it was outrageous. And his rivals thought it was, I think the quote is, skullduggery and unblushing theft. So they'd watched him and sort of barely tolerated him cannibalising the empire for his family's benefit. And From then, within, so it, when it he was dies, incredible of course, that this they, sw- they swing into action and claw it all back. Um, they take over organising the funeral and, you know, he's cremated before Rupert touches down in Australia. I mean, it, it, some of that behaviour, you really think, how could this actually be legal, what he was doing? <laughs> I mean, he kind of got away with it, but there did seem to be this... I I mean, completely unethical. You're surely your responsibilities <laughs> are to, you know, the business that you're supposed to be running, and actually, you're just carving off great sections of it to enrich yourself and to build your mm. own power base. So, not unusual, I guess, for a Murdoch, but kind of blatant because um, he was yeah. doing it from a company that he was supposed to be shepherding. Mm. And his whole career, like he, Keith, very um, self-consciously curated this kind of statesman-like image and certainly in the last 70 years Rupert his son and his papers have done a lot to um, uphold that as well you know no. the way people talk about <laughs> the Gallipoli letter and all that yeah. stuff oh, is that sort of foundational myth, myth where, yeah, but if you actually mythology. look at originally you know Keith has been pushing the barriers of of good taste and ethics and all these things from you know the Gallipoli letter which was riddled with with falsehoods I think it has what David Colbert might call sort of truthiness um but <laughs> a lot of them are second second or third hand accounts or I don't know, just flat out falsehoods you think that's why because you you mentioned in his in your book that Rupert tried at one point to write his own autobiography and ditched it and ditched it a couple of months later do you think that's the reason do you think Part of it is guilty, had, guilty conscience. Yeah, well, they've had that just sort of truthiness-based re- reality for so long that it it must be very hard to pin down what is actually true. Like what, like it would just come become clear that you're slightly, you know, just lying to yourself about what happened. Like, 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 because you'd think that he'd want to write his own bi- autobiography, but how could one tra- keep yeah. track? How could he? Keep maintain track of all the lies. All of those yes. lies. Like which he'd have to pick which Rupert mm. he he's got so many creation myths 
about himself, which one would he pick? Mm. You'd, they'd become all these, like, they'd overlap. He'd have, <laughs> you'd have. The thing that I, so, I mean, after the death of Sir Keith, we then have, like, they have to sell off um, the Courier Mail, even though Sir Keith had really wanted, like, the thing that he'd said in his last will and testament was sell off everything else before you let go of our newspaper assets. Um, every stick of furniture was to go before they got rid of um, any of the papers. But in the end, they did have to let Queensland go. And so Rupert then tries to rebuild his power base from Adelaide. And this is the sort of the Adelaide myth that all we Adelaideans um, know. And basically, he brought back an old mate um, who'd been working for Rupert, Rowan Rivett, um, to be the first editor. And they were trying to replicate a lot of the success in terms of that kind of feisty campaigning type of paper, um, which Sir Keith's uh, mentor, Northcliffe, Northcliffe, over in the UK, and then yep. here, and then and Keith had been Sir Keith had been doing in kind of Victoria and in Adelaide as well with the Colin Ross Memorial, which itself is kind of a terrible story where basically they used sensationalist reporting on a murder to build audience, and it turned out. Needless to say, you knew this was going to be the case, that years later Ross was exonerated after he'd been hanged and they have the Colin Ross Memorial um, section of the offices in Melbourne. So Rupert's trying to replicate that in Adelaide. But interestingly, um, because of the choice of Rivet as the editor-in-chief, they're actually doing it from a very progressive perspective. They're differentiating themselves from the advertiser by running actually a much more progressive agenda. Totally. Say the Colin Ross Memorial, not not the official title of the no, 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 <laughs> Weekly no, Times no. building, um, but, it but yeah, that was an so. interesting story to pull the thread of and foreshadowed yeah. um, a lot of the stuff that comes later in the book. Um, but yeah, the Rivet is really interesting and a really important figure in the book. He's kind of the 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 emotional, the moral through line, I guess, because he was sort of the meat in the sandwich between the two generations of of Murdochs. He'd been installed by Sir Keith um, to sort of lay the groundwork in Adelaide for Rupert's eventual arrival, um, but he was also also really close with Rupert and you know you can really see that he was an influence on Rupert's early progressive politics and when he touches down in Adelaide um, Rivet immediately tries to start you know, turning it into this progressive um, much louder uh, crusading kind of paper one of the things that he does uh, I read in a letter to Sir Keith was because there was such stigma around all these new migrants that were coming into South Australia uh, called New Australians. He issued a memo to the paper to stop making reference to New Australians in the crime pages uh, where it just wasn't necessary just because it just added to stigma that migrants were already facing. And if you you know look at that in the context of, uh, I think I, I was rereading that letter when there was another kind of African gang um, meetup happening in the in the Victorian papers. It just seems, you know, it's this total aberration in the arc of, of the Murdoch empire. But in terms of uh, Adelaide, yeah, Adelaide, uh, over that the 20 years leading up to it, had been run by this Liberal and Country League um, government, the play for government, which was kept in power by a gerrymander, really, which gave country voters uh, who voted for them um, twice the electoral weight as those in the city. And in the city, you know, it was home to this growing demographic of educated labour voters, also migrants who were coming in, and they were being, you know, dis- pretty flat, flat out disenfranchised. Mm. And because the Advertiser, which is the big establishment paper, the morning paper was totally in step um, with the government and the establishment of the day. They weren't being spoken to either. So there was a, on the one hand, that 
aligned with Rupert and Rowan's politics at the time. But there's also this um, real commercial opportunity for an untapped market, which, you know, the Labor Party won the popular vote, I think, in the 1953 or 52 state election, um, which, you know, that's the majority of the population that isn't, that's a readership that's totally untapped. So it made sense from a commercial standpoint as well. And actually, to me, it kind of reminded me of you know the very the variables are completely different, but it's not totally unlike how you know Fox News was started up, where in the '90s they saw this growing cable news um, uh, medium. Uh, but all from Roger Ailes and Murdoch's perspective, they were all speaking to a kind of centre centre left audience, and there was this whole um, cohort of Republican viewers that weren't being spoken to. So you know in that case, it had been aligned with Rupert's politics at that time, but it was also this commercial opportunity to you know recognize an audience that was being untapped and just and and grab it with something a product that spoke directly to them so all that that kind of groundwork was being laid in adelaide even though some of the details were totally flipped. There is, um, I mean, the great thing about this book as well is that uh, apart from this sort of origin story um, that we get and and a contextualising, if you like, of um, the political and commercial trajectory that Rupert then then goes on, there's just a number of really cracking yarns in there. Uh, The big story that, um, and you speculate that this is eventually what led to the downfall of the relationship between Rupert and Rowan, um, but was the case of um, Stuart, um, the, well, whether wrongly accused, I mean, it, you certainly make the case and, and I think most South Australians believe that he was wrongly accused of the violent um, sexual assault and murder of a young Indigenous man from uh, the Central Australia um, that was r- potentially wrongly accused of the rape and murder of this young white girl. Um, but this becomes this sort of crusading case um, around the really the breakdown of the judicial system in South Australia uh, and and what that meant about race relations and about power in South Australia at the time um, that led to Rowan and Rupert being charged with sedition. Now, I think we, we want to come to that story, but before we do, I also love the story that you had in there of Dickinson and like the, it's almost the origin story of the case of sedition where Dickinson, who had and started yet another little feisty paper that happened, but this time was very much a union man, the International Workers of the World paper, um, and he, he ended up being charged with sedition. And you make a link between that case um, and indeed years later, Rowan and Rupert being being charged. Can you just tell us that quickly? It's like a great story. Yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it because, um, yeah, this is a, a chapter that's kind of pretty deep in the book um, and, strictly speaking, takes place before Rupert was born and in Adelaide. So I was part of me thought the publisher is clearly going to cut this out, but he left it in and I'm so happy because it's that's such a good great. story. So basically in 1928, um, there were a lot of uh, workers' uh, disputes around the, the, the waterfront down in Port Adelaide um, and there was a new wage arbitration that had come in and the wharfies didn't like it and so they kind of went on strike and the ships were very quickly filled with scab laborers and that led to this kind of riot where the the wharfies all stormed the ships and pulled these scabs off or some of them jumped into the ocean into the port river just to try and swim away from them uh and then in the aftermath of that uh the this editor ted dickinson um who publishes Direct Action, which is the IWW sort of newspaper. And he's come in, he's also flown in, blown into Adelaide 
um, uh, shortly before that uh, as this kind of young, rowdy, progressive outsider as well. And they published this strike edition of the paper, and that leads to him being charged with a seditious libel, which is the first time it's been used in South Australia. And he actually gets convicted of it. Uh, and the court case, looking through the, the accounts of the court case, there's just so much you know, fantastic, colourful language that foreshadowed everything that came afterwards that I could put to use in the book. Um, but he eventually is convicted. Uh, he says, I think, 10 months and then eventually goes back to England after he's released. And it's a very colourful story because he later joins um, with the communists and goes and fights in the Spanish Civil War where he meets a... yeah. A, he meets his end uh, in the olive that groves of really the Jarama Valley. I think yeah, it's quite heartbreaking. Ended up. Um, but he, but then it turns out that, and this is an example of how. And I was just sort of following this rabbit hole because it was so colourful and um, just pretty wild. But then I was thinking, how am I going to justify shoehorning this into the book? But then, and it's just an example of how in Adelaide, uh, how Rupert has waded into this city, which you know has this entrenched establishment that hasn't been challenged really. Um, for for 20 years uh, and all these connections have been building up uh, in the same characters over those 20 years so that it doesn't take much for much of a challenge for everyone to kind of lose their minds and and charge Rupert with seditious libel but it just turned out right at the end of me researching this that the the prosecutor um, Roderick Chamberlain who was the lead sort of prosecutor in the Stewart case and really took the news's coverage of that case incredibly personally and was a very close advisor to Playford um, in you know the, the sedition trial that ended up happening. He was later appointed a judge. Anyway, this was one of his first cases, this prosecution of Ted Dickinson back in 1928. Uh, so he was the same age as Dickinson at the time, but he was a young man who was clearly on a, on a very different path. Um, and then, you know, in the 1950s, they wonder, people wonder, you know, where did Playford dig up this charge of this obscure common law charge of seditious libel? And, you know, probably his best mate Chamberlain who charged this guy 20, 20 years earlier. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the charge was essentially levelled against um, both Rupert and Rowan um, and was this cause celeb in, in Adelaide in South Australia and in much more widely as well. It was reported um, across the world really that here was this newspaper um, that had gone about reporting, you know, a very contentious crime um, and as a result of which uh, they were being charged with seditious libel, which carried, you know, significant jail time. Mm-hmm. So Rivette was kind of, so um, it was Rowan and News Limited that were actually charged. Um, and Rivette, right. throughout the whole, the Stewart case and the press campaign, he was kind of the identifiable, identifiable figurehead. He'd been the one that had been, the story had been pitched to um, initially uh, and he ran with it. And he internationally, I think one article in, in London called him the Zola of South Australia, which the news loved and published as an ad in their paper. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, it's at, it's at the trial where it's revealed that, uh, and this is after um, weeks and weeks of stonewalling from from Rupert. So I found these 
uh, wonderful interview transcripts of when the police come to the News Limited headquarters to interview Rowan and then later Rupert and Rupert just totally stonewalls throughout the entire thing and when it comes to court uh, he refuses to really say anything of substance all his journalists try to stick to this line of silence this wall of silence even refusing to um, state their occupation as journalists which leads to some really funny bizarre courtroom scenes um, in the book to the two of them are sent a complete pardon by the executive council so he can't plead you know fear of self-incrimination um but when the case finally comes to a head and rowan takes the stand uh, that's when he reveals that some of these headlines which had got them into this tr- into trouble which reported on this moment in the stewart royal commission which came about as a result of the news reporting um when uh, stewart's lawyer a guy called jack shan staged a walkout essentially because he um, was interrupted whilst interrogating a police officer the police officer who'd first pointed the finger at stewart and he and the the royal commissioner who interrupted him and said i've kind of heard enough of this that was actually the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in South Australia. So Shan, the lawyer, sort of did a walkout. The news covered in very colourful terms with headlines like, these commissioners cannot do the job, you won't give Stuart a fair go. And this, in a sense, the government, Playford, you know, held them up in Parliament, these pages, and said it was the gravest libel that had ever been um, levelled at a member of the judiciary. And because he'd, he'd appointed the Chief Justice, who had previously sat on one of Stuart's appeals, he'd appointed him as a Royal Commissioner. So the attacks on the Royal Commission were now an attack on the Chief Justice and the whole judiciary, which, you know, Playford could have avoided if he hadn't just tried yeah. to stack the Royal Commission with um, the Chief Justice. Anyway, um, but these headlines, these are this is the... The, um, the sort of spark that sets off this whole seditious libel trial. And at the trial, Rivet finally admits that uh, actually Rupert um, was the one who wrote uh, quite a few of those headlines. So he'd been kind of in the shadows at this time because <laughs> he think he's he's sort of expanding. He's got his eye on Sydney, but it just showed that at this moment of a lot of um, pressure, uh, a lot of excitement, I guess, in their newsroom as well, Rupert still... Yeah, had his had one hand there. on the steering like, wheel. Literally right in the headlines. To, mm. Yeah, roll his roll his roll his sleeves up and and muck in. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, a great great story and indicates so much about the kind of the forensic way that Rupert runs mm. his empire. Um, even when he says, you know, no, I've got great editors. You know, I'm not. No, what. I can't do email. That's the one. That's that's my favourite myth. Yeah, <laughs> that that is. Um, there's that great reported. quote that he says, um, "Don't," or that I think it's Rivette who says, "It's um, don't be fooled into thinking um, that a long leash is a free rein." Yeah, <laughs> it's like a very good line. Um, all right, I will stop talking about Adelaide um, because you know I could talk about that for a lot longer. Mm. And one thing I will say that I did love that um, story where Rivette has come in and he gets told off by Sir Keith about using too many flat photos, and it's like, come on, can't we get something a bit livelier? And Rivette says, you know, South Australians would always much prefer a flat photo which features South Australians <laughs> to, to any kind of other photo which is dynamic and showing news from around the world. We love our self-references in South Australia. But the other cracking yarn that I, I wanted you to just um, touch on for us, and because this leads us um, perhaps more into the kind of contemporary um, understanding of Rupert as he tries, to, you know, he's desperate to get into Sydney, uh, into New South Wales, which is the one territory in, in uh, Australia which Sir Keith never cracked at all. And there is this extraordinary story, um, which I had never heard about, um, which is perhaps one of the first occasions where the Packers and the Murdochs get into kind of a tussle. And in this case, actually quite a physical tussle um, with the story of the Atlantic press. So in 1959, 
at the height of all the Stuart, the Royal Commission, um, all this stuff, um, Rupert makes uh, just this audacious bid to take over the advertiser, like a multi-billion dollar bid. They flat out reject him, and that pretty much places a firm ceiling on what he can do in Adelaide. So he turns his sights over to Sydney, um, and it's an example of how he is just this incredible opportunist, really. So he has a look at Sydney and sees that there's, first there's this string of suburban giveaway papers um, by this company called Cumberland Press, which has been sort of stitched together by its owner over a number of years. And because the suburbs are growing, this is a growing audience, it's not a particularly prestigious paper, but it's a start. It gives him access to printing presses, things like that. Um, so he buys that. Uh, kind of, a, He was the sort of the secret bidder, really. He got an intermediary to do that purchase. Uh, and then once he's got a foot in the door, he convinces um, Rupert Henderson of Fairfax to sell off the Daily Mirror, um, which was this paper they'd bought uh, a year or two earlier and was really um, losing a lot of money. So Fairfax thought, oh, I'll sell it to Rupert um, and maybe that'll even put a, a handbrake on his ambitions. Um, and that <laughs> led Rupert into conflict with the Packers because, um, yeah, imagine if that had succeeded, uh, leads him into conflict with the Packers because the Packers had been wanting to edge into this suburban giveaway market, um, but they had they had struck a deal with the Daily Mirror and Fairfax to use their presses to print these things. So suddenly uh, they were kind of panicked. Frank Packer was panicked. And it led to all this attention on this very small um, publishing uh, printing company called Anglican Press, which is part owned by the Anglican Church, printed the Anglican newsletter. Um, <laughs> and suddenly that became, you know, it was, it was failing. It was a failing company, but suddenly it became the only um, unaligned printing press in Sydney. Uh, so it became the focus of this incredible power struggle. So first, it was, into, it was going into receivership anyway, um, but the Packers, they swung in and they bought it out. But then Rupert caught wind of the deal and he uh, made an overture to the guy who was sort of running the company and said, uh, we have to stop this, um, got to edge the Packers out. And they sacked the receivers, uh, which made the Packers deal theoretically void uh, and brought in new ones. There was this new company formed, uh, which had you know, a bunch of churchmen on it, on the board, but then also Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> Uh, and then, but then at, at the last minute, um, the Packers, I guess, uh, sensing that possession is what nine tenths of the law, they just rocked up at this place. Uh, Frank Packers' sons, Kerry and Clyde, uh, these big sort of bruisers, I guess, and a few of their, mm. their mates. And they, they come in, they, they muscle their way in. Uh, through the back door, uh, they cut the phone and lines. Uh, they they grab they grab the the publisher of this company, who I in some sources is oh, he's like an amputee. He's one legged, and they grab <laughs> he's holding on with his one leg onto the door frame to oh try and goodness. you know keep traction. They pull him out, they chuck them out, literally uh, chuck them they, onto the street. They've got it. Mm. They and then anyway, so so this this all happens. Um, and Rupert catches wind. He teams up with the the publisher who initially reached out to him. They recruit some some heavier toughs. Like this is all happening over like the same evening. Pub. So like the Packers are <laughs> yeah, it's in, all, it's all, in the press, like in Anglican Press's office, literally barricading the windows yeah. as they, they get on the phone to Murdoch to bring in his heavies. <laughs> so Rupert, in I think in, it's Paul Barry's book um, about the about Kerry Packer has a great account of it. I think he spoke to some people before they died, but supposedly Rupert hands over um, some cash on the steps of some building uh, to these toughs and they all go back to the Anglican Press um, in Chippendale and they um, force their way in 
And Rupert also sends one of his photographers. So his paper, The Daily Mirror, the next day is splashed with these great photos of Knight's Sun because Franklin had just been um, knighted, Knight's Sun in City Brawl. And it's got these shots of, yeah, the, his two sons being ter- forcibly turfed out. And I actually did track down this one guy um, who he's like, he's a, I think he's a, a minister, an Anglican minister now. He's, he's getting on now, but he told me this incredible story of he was the one who, uh, whacked Kerry in the head with a, like a two-by-four. Six-by-four, you um, said. So Kerry's it's a six-by-four, not two-by-four, six-by-four. <laughs> oh, okay, I forget. Okay, it's a big bit of wood. Yeah, um, and I think he was trying to. He was just trying wood. to open, get the door open somehow, and Kerry's head appeared and he, he whacked him. Uh, and so Kerry is bleeding in Rupert's paper in these photos, these very colourful photos, and, and that was this guy's, this guy's doing. And then later this guy actually had a small paper of his own and he sold it to Kerry and he, he told me that he... He didn't think it was worth mentioning that they had met before. <laughs> <laughs> Just so many great stories like that in the book. Um, mm. I really, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I think the the one thing that I'll say, and then I'll shut up and, you know, let other people get a, a word in too, but uh, when the downfall comes, and as I say, there is, there's lots of speculation as to what actually happened that caused Rupert to sort of send the letter to his, you know, longtime friend, mm. his partner in crime and ally, um, uh, Roland to say that's it. You're kind of you're out, and it did remind me of watching the SBS doco relatively recently on mm. on Murdoch. Um, and and Anna Murdoch, his second wife, who had been so kind of bitter about it, is Murdoch's kind of endless capacity to just cut people loose and move on once they've outlasted their use, um, no longer um, a, a role for them in his life, and he can just sort of ditch them, um, seemingly quite dispassionately and kind of move on. And that's kind of what happens with Rowan in the end. And, I mean, I was finishing this book uh, in September last year uh, and, yeah, around that time I think the news of of his divorce from Jerry Hall came out and the the reports that he'd um, broken the news via email. Yeah, Um, they obviously can use email. He he definitely can use email. Only in matters of divorce. Contrary contrary to the claims in the the 2008 biography by um, Michael Wolfe, the man who owns the news, that um, he's a Luddite and, in fact, his third wife, Wendy Deng, um, had to be operating the email during the um, Dow Jones takeover, which I don't believe for a second. Well, he's working from home now, um, so he's probably got a really uh, high-tech setup. Yeah, I mean, he he, he started the satellite market in China. How does one not know how to operate email if you're doing that? (laughs) I mean, and it's funny, like, um, because, you know, this book takes place in the 1950s, but so much of the story is about him and his papers um, in this period of, of kind of technological disruption, you know, the arrival of television, he this is... modernising mm. of, of newspapers that, you know, him and his competitors as well, but they're flying all around the world, you know, really hungrily identifying all the new techniques, the new ways of, of marketing to audiences, you know, TV is it TV Week, the one – which one sponsors the Logies? TV Week is the TV Australian yeah. one, yeah. He basically goes to America, sees TV Guide being a success, goes here, comes back home and sets up TV Week, which is just sort of a carbon copy of it. Um, yeah, so he's, he's really recognising these changes and trying to exploit He's them. always been at the forefront of technological disruption. He mm. is a disruptor. That was whopping right there. Mm. 
but also like all the all the great disruptors of, of the tech age is also ultimately a reactionary who's <laughs> just <laughs> shaking up the system to remake just a, a new more exploitative he's, version of what we had mm. before he's With, he's pri- you know, yeah he's primarily screen, more screens <laughs> he's primarily motivated and i think that one of the first stories that you told was kind of revelatory as well his his politics and his morals are quite plastic and they're a, a vehicle for his business yeah, interests, his commercial interests, mm. which motivate him to do just about anything, um, mm. including mm. having fisticuffs. Apparently, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but, well, that was... but what what does motivate him? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, that's kind of why. I mean, for me, I think it really comes down to those those heady sort of weeks and months in mm. in 1950, 1952, 1953, where he's yeah locked into this yeah this siege mentality. Mm. The, mm. the loss of the Courier Mail leaves him with this huge chip on his shoulder that he carries for, for years later. And then to, in order to fight back against his father's old company, which is much better resourced, he has to expand from you know from the very start and because he doesn't have the capital in the beginning he's constantly borrowing and because he's constantly borrowing and to keep family control he's borrowing the money he's not seeking more investors um and so that growth is fueled by loans and to pay back the loans he has to be profitable more profitable in every market in every market to be more profitable he has to push the envelope even further and further and it explains how he gets stuck in a structural sense he's on this treadmill uh of endless voracious growth and of um, lowering the bar and I guess raising the temperature again and again in all of these markets and it all kind of comes back I think to to those early days in Adelaide interestingly and this is just one colorful story that um, I was very amused by in the in the archives but you know for, for so long Rupert I think he kind of viewed it as this sort of sliding doors moment where wouldn't things have been different if he'd managed to hold if his mother had sort of um Stayed, stayed strong and held on to the Courier Mail and he could have started off, could have, you know, skipped Adelaide entirely and started off um, in Brisbane on the East Coast. But actually, I, I found this story about how, because actually Keith's silent partner in the Courier Mail was John Wren. Oh, there. Yeah. This uh, is great. Quite notorious mm, yes. um, figure, you know, power without glory, all that stuff. And he was a silent partner, really. Uh, and Keith knew that it probably wasn't a good look. His wife, Elizabeth, wasn't particularly um, thrilled about that association. Um, but it was he was kind of always in the background. And Keith knew that as soon as he died, he's, he was constantly making moves right at the end and probably hoped to find a way to edge John out. But he knew that as it, as it was at the moment he died, the moment he died, that power would, would dissipate. Um, and so while Rupert was incensed that his father's old colleagues at the Herald had swung in and bought those shares back, they then had to contend with this weird relationship with John Wren, who was a pretty powerful figure. And once Keith was gone, would have exerted more influence. So I think it would have been a very interesting, it's a very interesting alternate universe in which Rupert inherited the Courier Mail and at 22 had to come up against John Wren um, rather than, you know, making his way in Adelaide. I mean, luckily, yeah. John Wren did die in a, at a Collingwood game a year after that. So <laughs> he would have had a clear run eventually, but. <laughs> you know, it's not surprising that he ended up dead after Different, going to different means games. to the same end, though, really. Like, uh, would it really have been that, that much of an alternate universe? Do you think you just would have really pursued the same goals, though? I think, you know, this. The character will out in the end. Yeah, yeah. Mm. This pursuit of, this relentless pursuit of power at all costs. I think mm. this is sort of. The man who sits on the board of Genie Energy with Dick Cheney and, mm. you know, former director of the CIA. But you know, unless this is who we're talking about here. Unless it's the chip on the shoulder that's motivated him to be so acquisitive, in which case mm. perhaps, you know, 
he would have just stayed in Queensland and, and relaxed <laughs> on the beach. You know what I mean? Like, like, and even if, if, his fa- if his father had lived a bit longer, his father was, you know, a very dominating figure. And, um, you know, I think it, he died at just the right time for Rupert's trajectory because, you know, Rupert's sons have been in this, you know, protracted, mm. torturous, like, you know, a Prince Charles-esque almost um, mm. waiting around waiting game they're closer in age now to keith when he died than they were than they are to rupert when he took over mm. so you know if, if keith had stuck around and you know been looking over rupert's shoulder he might not have been able to, to take mm. the risks to be this kind of disruptor that um, we saw him become so on the on the downside we got rupert murdoch that we know but on the upside we do get succession so you know like, <laughs> sort of Pros and cons. Yeah. I mean, that yeah, it is really helps. It really Foxtel helps cure the, so. the, sh- the shattered democracy. <laughs> that, uh, I know, but it's. <laughs> it was go a, and just go and give copies of Succession to yeah. or every um, broken life. That, that yeah, every, every American mm. who's well, yeah. Walter. It really is like such a great read, um, and. You know, it, the detail that you have, um, the research that you've done is just so impressive uh, and I really recommend yes. this book to, to everyone. Yes, and it's pu- it's published by Scribe. It's out today, I think, is the first day. Well, it was uh, launched. It was la- launched last yeah, yeah, night. yesterday, but, yeah, it's out, yeah. Yeah, it's out, it's out everywhere apparently. And the uh, UK in November, America in, um, <gasps> in January. Oh, and, very know, strategic, the, see. The first week of January, which, as we know, is a very um, – uh, a big week for American <laughs> Murdoch-related stuff in the last few Well, years. indeed, indeed. Well, and we shouldn't um, finish before saying that overnight, of course, Donald Trump has been finally indicted for his role in January 6th. Um, so just another another one of the um, legal kind of quagmires in which he's become enmeshed, but the most consequential in terms of American democracy. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. And how it's reported on Fox News. <laughs> or not, as the case may <laughs> be. Has it been reported in any of the Murdoch papers here in Australia? I don't know because I'm not often on them, but no. certainly I can report that another nine news and The Guardian have got it leading <laughs> as breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I haven't even been – we haven't had time for me to ask you about how it is that the Adelaide Review is now um, the key subversive element in reporting on Spanish elections, um, but we will have to do that another mm. time um, for those those Adelaideans amongst us who remain fascinated by this. But thank you so much for joining us, Walter. Thank you for this book. Um, go out and buy it everybody um, and we look forward to uh, to coming back again probably not with Walter alas fun that it's been uh, next week thanks for having me it won't be the last time that we talk about Rupert Murdoch <laughs> it will not be the last yeah. time that we talk about Rupert Murdoch our gear is from Road. we are part of the Iconoclast Network catch you next time see you later okay that was great hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.